What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA, and I hope you guys' day has been amazing. If you guys want to catch any extra podcast episodes, make sure to join the Patreon or join as a member of the channel. The link will be in the description below. And we just hit 250,000 subscribers, a quarter million. I mean, I, I mean, I'm out of words. I don't know what to really say about it. When I hit 100,000, I didn't even know what to say then. Sometimes I just get lost in the content. You know, I just love making videos, always studying, always looking at things, always trying to come up with different kind of ideas. My brain just never stops, to be honest. And then before I know it, 100,000, 250,000 subscribers. What's next, you know? So it's been a very special time, man, and I am super grateful for all of you. The community that we built is one of the best in the whole MMA genre, to be honest here. I mean, I've been all over the scene, sure dog, on the underground forum, on Twitter, on Reddit, all the different stuff, and I'll have to say that this community is by far the best. It's the by far the most positive and one of the most intelligent. The feedback you guys have been giving me over the years has greatly helped the channel and helped everything pretty much just grow with it. The content, the ideas, the way the message is built through the videos and all that stuff. It's all thanks to you guys as well. And the next stop is 500,000, man. Cannot wait to get there, man. But what's been going on in MMA so far? Not too much news. We're still coming off that UFC 265 card. And just that main event is still boggling my mind just a little bit. Not the fact that Surrealgon beat Derek Lewis so easily. I thought that's how the fight would have probably played out. But I think I'm just so excited for the heavyweight division now. For a long time, the heavyweight division hasn't been the most exciting. Let's be honest here. It's been like the lighter weight classes, lightweight, featherweight. Now bantamweight is taking over the scene. The heavyweight division has had like a few great fighters. Or fighters that a lot of people are looking forward to. Francis Agano, when he burst onto the scene, was kind of a breath of fresh air. But he was just powerful, athletic, a big guy. And that's what a lot of people have been kind of used to for years on end, ever since, you know, Brock Lesnar, Shane Carwin, Elsta Overeem. We've had big, powerful guys in the past. The thing why the heavyweight division now is so exciting, especially for someone like us who like to see the technical side of the sport and really admire someone's craftiness in the cage, Surreal Gan is making the heavyweight division far more fun. He is the most technical striker we have ever seen in the heavyweight division. He's the most fluid with his footwork. He's so long. He's extremely fast, super athlete, and he's big with all of those attributes. I haven't been this excited for the heavyweight division, I don't think ever. I love the Cain Velasquez and JDS days. I loved when Stipe Miocic took over. Honestly, for me, wasn't the biggest fan around the Brock Lesnar era. It was still fun, but it wasn't like the best era for me in the heavyweight division. The one I thought was the most exciting. With Surreal Gan and Francis Ngannou at the top, and guys like Alexander Volkov and other technical fighters in this division staying toward the top of the weight class, this is the heavyweight division's era that I'm most excited about. It's very rare to see a heavyweight like Surreal Gan. It really is, man. He's a special fighter that we're not going to see for a very long time. He does so many things that no other heavyweight heavyweight does not just the movements i mean some of the strikes that he throws out there the reverse up elbow side kicks shifting combinations who throws a shifting combination in mma other than the smaller guys like dustin poirier or tj dillashaw it's hard to even go down to light heavyweight most middleweights even and actually a lot of welterweights who don't even throw shifting combinations don't have the footwork to do that but we have someone like surreal gun moving out there like a lighter fighter and that's one of the most special things about Gan. if anybody i've been saying this for a bit now if anybody is going to be Francis Ngannou, it's probably going to be Surreal Gan. The footwork, the evasiveness, the fight IQ, which is probably the most important thing, the cardio, the superior speed, the length, the size as well. I cannot wait to see that fight play out. And honestly, I think the fighter that's going to beat Stipe Miocic's records in this heavyweight division, such as title defenses, title wins, 
and all of those accolades, I think it's either going to be Cyril Gan or it's going to be Francis Ngannou. I think Ngannou is going to beat everybody, except the only difficult fight for him, I think, might be Stipe still, but Cyril Gan is the biggest one. Cyril Gan is the real obstacle in the road for Francis Ngannou to completely take over and break records. Cyril Gan does like to duck his head in and push you away when you pressure him, and this leads to uppercut opportunities for Francis Ngannou specifically, and Francis is getting a lot better with reading the striking situations. He's a lot better at finding the openings. I mean, that right touch, left jab that he caught, with St that he caught Stipe with was excellent, and that's the kind of stuff that you don't normally see from Francis, which tells that he's getting much, much better. So there are going to be some openings that he's probably going to find on Surreal Gan that we haven't seen other fighters go to. A lot of people don't kick Gan's legs with the power that Francis is going to commit with, and I wonder how that's going to slow down the movement. I can see Surreal Gan checking them and then countering with a long jab or something like that, and his elusiveness is going to allow him to get away from some of the winging punches and counter with straighter shots, being a bit quote-unquote boring, similar to the way he fought Jersey in a Rosenstrike for like the first two to three rounds. Just enough to gas off Francis Ngannou and start taking over after that. But I think the biggest impact on this fight is going to be Surreal Gan's footwork. Not only to just move away and stuff, but to create angles on Francis Ngannou. You could take a little bit from the sparring, I guess. Because when two guys are sparring, their footwork is going to be pretty much at maximum effort, if you know what I'm saying. Like, they're going to be moving as much as they can. They're just not going to hit as hard as they can. And what you saw from the footwork between the two is Surreal Gan was just running laps around Ngannou. Like, creating angles however he wanted. And Ngannou was very, very plodding. And he was just like following what Gan was doing. If he starts following Gan's footwork instead of cutting him off, it's going to be about time before Ngannou starts to get a little too tired. And honestly, he's just going to run into a lot of shots, a lot of straights, a lot of jabs, depending on which stance Gan wants to take. And I also do see Surreal Gan throwing a lot of front kicks. This is not only going to work the body from a distance, but it's a great tool against a guy who likes to be overly pressuring. Throw punches over your kicks and stuff like that. It's very hard to throw punches over a front kick unless you do parry it or move on the side, but it's going to be hard for Ngannou to create that kind of angle with his footwork against Surreal Gan specifically because of the speed advantage and the way Surreal Gan is able to feint at you at all times. The feints are going to set up a lot of things like the front kicks and the front kicks are going to cause some of the damage to the body especially when Ngannou is trying to move forward and if he can catch a counter thrust kick right into the body not a snap kick a thrust kick instead that's going to create a lot more damage for Surreal Gan and it's going to make the later rounds even easier for him. There's also going to be side kicks to the knee stomps on the knee oblique kicks all that sort of stuff instead of throwing the round kicks which does create a moment for Francis to move in on a straight line and attack with his long punches if Surreal Gan starts going to the front kicks and the side kicks instead it's going to keep Francis Agano at bay for most of the fight and from there he's able to gauge the distance a lot better against a guy who has a slight reach advantage over him and another thing that the feints are going to do so we do know that it's going to set up offensive strikes for Surreal Gan, but it's more importantly going to get some of the reactions out of Francis Agano. what do we know that Agano loves to do in every single fight if you pressure him or sure you're going to advance on him, he's going to pull back for the left hand and then follow up with a big right. So by simply feinting forward, especially in the orthodox stance, he is going to trigger that pull back from Francis Ngannou, who wants to catch you with that left hook and set you up. In the southpaw stance, he might be able to trigger the right hand out of Francis Ngannou and those winded up punches are going to show the openings that Ngannou is going to need to take. If Ngannou pulls back for the left, Surreal Gan can follow up with a body kick. He can follow up with a leg kick instead. And that create, and this creates a lot more confusion for Ngannou. And you could kind of just see how here, technically, how this all plays together. That Surreal Gan can absolutely 
outclass Francis Ngannou in terms of technique. If he can make all of this work, he might be the only fighter who could potentially make Ngannou look like he doesn't belong in there with him. But that power is just something a little bit different. And there's a huge probability that Surreal Gun is also going to give a lot of respect to Ngannou's power. And he's not going to go for this many things. He's probably going to dial back on the techniques that he's going to throw out there from defense to offense. And if he does that, it makes Ngannou way more dangerous in the fight. Because that respect is going to create a lapse in action in that void that Surreal Gun is creating in his techniques and his ability to make something happen, Francis Ngannou is going to fill in that space and start pressuring Surreal Gun a lot more effectively, potentially land the jab, potentially land the right uppercut. And if he is able to cut off the cage this time against Surreal Gun, those left hooks might be there as well, man. He might be able to catch Surreal Gun moving away and try to exit. There are things about Surreal Gun right now that are pretty unknown. Not a lot of fighters put that uber pressure on him, and I wonder if that's what Francis Ngannou is going to do, but it's going to be a double-edged sword. If he comes out with that kind of approach, he's going to risk himself gassing out if nothing happens for the first two rounds. But if he goes tap for tap, plays distance technical striking with Surreal Gan just to preserve his energy, he is most likely going to lose the fight. If he gets past Surreal Gan, it's hard to see anybody else beat Francis Aganu. Now, if Surreal Gan is able to develop his wrestling to another level and make an actual asset to his game where he's taken advantage of many different kind of situations, many kind of different openings or weaknesses that he has right now, right? Instead of shifting into crosses and jabs and hooks, he could shift into takedowns now. It creates a complete different layer for him to demoralize and dominate his opponents. Imagine a Surreal Gan who also has the mix-ups of a double leg, of a single like everybody's going to be completely perplexed as to how to engage this guy with the speed that he has it's going to be such a problem for everybody if surreal gun is able to develop the wrestling that it looks like he is working on to a level where he could take down almost anybody in this division or at least trick them up so he could strike with them after mixing up the takedowns i don't think anybody's going to be surreal gone I don't see anybody here beating him. I don't think Ngannou beats him. I don't think Stipe beats him. I don't even think John Jones beats him. If he could develop that wrinkle that he's working on to that level, he's going to be the most complete fighter we've ever seen in the heavyweight division, one of the biggest guys in the heavyweight division, the fastest guy in the heavyweight division, and the smartest guy in the heavyweight division up until John Jones comes up. John Jones is probably the only fighter who can match him or surpass him when it comes to fight IQ. And I know Daniel Cormier was talking about that a bit. He was talking about how John Jones is the fighter that's going to give Surogan the most problems. Possibly. If he could take down Surreal Gan because that takedown defense is pretty unknown right now, yes, then John Jones is probably the guy that could beat Surreal Gan the most dominantly. But John Jones is not going to be able to strike with Surreal Gan at all. You could just think of it like this Look what Dominic Reyes did to John Jones on the feet. Yes, he's a southpaw, he's left handed heavy. He is pretty much a very one dimensional version of Surreal Gan when it comes to striking. He doesn't switch stances that much. He doesn't use his right hand nearly as many times as Surreal Gan does. He doesn't kick as many times as Surreal Gan does. Doesn't have all the variety overall in punches and kicks and elbows and knees. And he's shorter and probably less powerful. If Dominic Reyes was able to beat John Jones like that, what do you think Surreal Gan would do? If Surreal Gan could just defend the takedowns enough, use even the first phase of takedown defense, and that is footwork, if he could just move away from where John Jones wants to shoot it on him, or clinch up and trip and throw and stuff like that, it's going to be a very difficult fight for John Jones, far more difficult than it was when he fought Dominic Reyes. And of course, there's the X factor that we don't know how John Jones looks at heavyweight. He might even be more powerful. If he has the kind of power that can hurt anybody in the heavyweight division, then it definitely changes the landscape. But as of what we know, it's a difficult one, man. John Jones is going to have to take that fight to the ground very, very quickly. But that's not the fight that's going to happen unless Gan beats Ngannou, right? If Surreal Gan beats Ngannou, then of course, John Jones is going to set his targets on that new heavyweight champion. But I'm hearing a lot of people say now, and especially from Errol Hawani, that they got to put John Jones versus Francis Ngannou next. 
Not Cyril Gaon versus Nganu, Jones versus Nganu. And I do not agree with that, man. We've seen that in the past. We saw that when Michael Bisping fought GSP when Robert Whitaker won the interim belt. And that really messed up the division for a while up until GSP, you know, beat Michael Bisping, won the belt, and then vacated it. The fact that he vacated the belt gave the division more order where Whitaker was able to fight yet again, claim the undisputed title, and then start defending it. If John Jones goes and beats, you know, Francis Agano, or even Francis goes and beats John Jones, it's going to hold Cyril Gan off, who now has to take another fight and defend his interim title. That is something that doesn't normally happen, man. Most interim title defenses are because the official champion is injured or something. When we look back at the Dominic Cruz and Hannibal Burrell situation, Burrell had to defend his interim title because Cruz was constantly injured. But I don't agree with it, man. We got to do Ngannou versus Gan. Stipe is right there. That will hurt Stipe more than anybody else, unless they do like Cyril Gan versus Stipe for the interim belt. Right, Gan is going to defend that title against Stipe, but I don't know if Stipe would be all up for that. Maybe he would. Maybe he'll just be fed up with the way that they're treating him and they keep holding him back from something that he kind of deserves, all for a money fight. And if Jones goes and wins, we don't even know if he's going to stay in the weight class because he just said recently, or I think his coach said recently, that Jones is more excited about fighting Jan Blachowicz than Israel Adesanya at this point. Does that mean once he wins the heavyweight title, he's going to jump back down to 205? You can't have that happen. So Francis Agano versus Cyril Gan is the fight to make. And honestly, John Jones versus Stipe Miocic is the fight to make as well. Who would not love to see that one? I mean, we're talking about the greatest heavyweight of all time. I don't know why John Jones wouldn't want to fight that guy. Maybe only for the money, but Stipe draws pretty well. It might be because he was the champ, and that's why he drew the 400,000 pay-per-view buys. But what we know so far is Stipe is able to draw fairly well. And John Jones, on his own, as the A-side, can draw 500, 600, 700,000 buys. Combine that with his first heavyweight fight against the greatest heavyweight of all time, who was not too long ago a dominant champion, the most dominant champion in the heavyweight division, I don't know how that wouldn't sell good enough, right? And if he goes and beats Stipe, it draws even more attention for his title fight because then he could fight the winner of Gan and Nganu and everything stays in order. The worst thing for John Jones would be if he goes into the heavyweight division, fights someone like Nganu right away and just proves to be too small and too weak. And Nganu just blasts right through and makes it look like it's nothing. It just shows everybody, you know, size is a big difference, especially for someone like Jones who uses his size and his reach very, very well. He knows how to combine his skills behind those attributes. But in a division where those attributes are not that special, because everybody else is around that size and length, you would probably tell everybody that, you know, maybe Jones needed to get that first fight against Stipe and really get used to the weight class and compete with that kind of size on him. He might be slower. He might have worse cardio. We have no idea. And the other fight a lot of people are talking about is Jose Aldo versus Dominic Cruz. The only thing I like about this fight is the whole nostalgia behind it, right? They were both the dominant champions of the lighter weight classes, of the lightest weight classes when they were in the middle of their streaks, right? Featherweight and bantamweight were the lightest weight classes in the UFC. But honestly, man, how can we even see Dominic Cruz winning this fight? He can't take Jose Aldo to the ground. He's not going to strike with him for the most part. He might be a bit tricky with his hands from a distance, but Aldo is is longer than him. Aldo has more power than him. Aldo's faster than him. And he has the leg kicks. That alone might prove this fight to be nowhere near competitive. I don't think even in their primes, Cruz would have done much to Jose Aldo. I mean, he would have gotten leg kicked all day and Cruz is not as good leading the fight against a counterpuncher. Jose Aldo is an amazing counterpuncher, especially with that check left hook. He has the uppercut. Now he's measuring things a lot better behind the jab, even on the defense. But with his offense, he's a lot more active behind that jab. And it also plays into his cardio being quote-unquote better. So in a three-round or five-round fight, I do not see Cruz beating Jose Aldo. Even if Jose gets a bit tired in the fourth or fifth rounds, it's hard to see Cruz finish Aldo. Also... 
they're not even close in the rankings. Aldo is number five. Dominic Cruz is number 10. Aldo's right now on a two-win streak, and he just beat Pedro Munoz, who's number nine. Why would he fight number 10, who's below Munoz? We know that Cruz probably draws a little bit more, but they're not going to put him as a main event of a pay-per-view or something like that. So they actually don't get more money headlining a fight night card, right? So the promotion doesn't really matter. Yes, they could draw in more views, and that can help Aldo's negotiation for more money in the future. But why go that route when you can go and fight a TJ Dillashaw. TJ seemed to be a bit interested in fighting Jose Aldo. Maybe not before a title shot because he does deserve that title shot, but that would be an amazing fight. Honestly, Ralph Font versus Jose Aldo is probably the fight to make next. Or you could do Corey Sanhagen versus Jose Aldo. I like both of those fights much more than the Cruz fight. Because Jose Aldo right now is not that old fighter who needs legacy fights. Like a Nick Diaz, like Robbie Lawler. You know, guys who are fighting the older guys that make more sense for their era. They're a bit behind the times and they can't compete with the younger fighters. Jose Aldo is one of the best fighters in the bantamweight division. So we don't need to see him fight Cruz yet. Maybe when they get a little bit older and Aldo's clearly out of it, then they can start putting that kind of fight together. But right now, Aldo wants that belt. He doesn't care for Cruz. If I were him... The smartest thing would be is to fight Corey Sanhagen. Sanhagen is number three. He's in front of Rob Font. He's coming off a loss and didn't suffer any injuries. And Corey would love to get that fight. A legend like Jose Aldo, that would do a lot for his name if he goes and beats him as well. So honestly, that's the fight that Aldo should probably pursue. And if that's not on the table, Rob Font's right there as well. He would love to fight Aldo. Aldo's in a position right now where everybody wants to fight him because he has that name. He has that legacy behind him. And he's a very capable fighter in this bantamweight division. But with all that, let's go right to the questions. The most questions I've ever had for a podcast, but unfortunately, I can't get to all of a thousand of them. We're going to start with the members and the patrons, and then we're going to move right into the public questions. So first one by John Jordan. I recently rewatched Hendrix versus Lawler 1 and 2, which made me wonder who would win these fantasy matchups. Pre-Usada Hendrix versus Geishi or Chandler, and Prime Lawler versus Geishi and Chandler. Each fight at 170, and for fun, let's say it's War Geishi. Those guys are a bit too small in my opinion. Geishi and Chandler will definitely have the kind of power and maybe even the cardio to go five rounds, but pre-Usada Hendricks, different level of power. They do not hit as hard as he did, and it's going to be very hard for them to stop his wrestling. He's so big and strong. Look what he did to GSP. There were those moments where he just gotten one underhook, and he turned GSP into the cage with one arm. Nobody does that, and GSP was resisting. He just could not handle the strength of Hendricks. And if Geishi wants to go and kick Hendricks' legs, Hendricks is a southpaw fighter, but I think he would be able to catch those leg kicks and take him to the ground. And then we talk about uh, Robbie Lawler. Different level of power. Again, he has that chin. He has that ferocity, the pressure. And he was a technical brawler, man, that left hand down the pipe. Perhaps Geishi would be able to counter him here and there, but he has a much shorter reach. And Lawler's outside step for that left straight is going to be very hard for Geishi to defend. And as for Chandler, I think Robbie would just counter him all day, man. Geishi does have the light kicks, but, but against someone like Prime Lawler who keeps pushing the pace in his southpaw, he's going to be finding those left hands on Geishi over and over again, very similar to the way that Dustin Poirier was finding them, but with Lawler having a completely different level of power. Then we go to Grundy. Do you think Corey is necessarily the better fighter, or do you think the compromised eye and knee had a big impact for TJ Dillashaw? When you say better fighter, do you mean when they're both competing up against each other, or who's the better fighter in the division, like who can beat more fighters and get further in the division? But in terms of who is the better fighter when they face each other, I probably have to say TJ is probably the better fighter. He was greatly compromised in the fight even before going into it. He had an injured knee starting from the first round. He had the whole thing with the eye and two-year layoff. He had so many things against him so many odds he had to beat and he still got past it to make it at least a competitive fight with Corey who's in his prime and been competing so if we see TJ fighting more often 
no ring rust at all, the timing there and all that stuff, not compromised, not injured going to the fight, I think TJ would be Corey. Now, in terms of who goes further in the division, I have to say TJ is the better fighter. I think TJ would do better things than Corey in the bantamweight division. I think he's more of a problem for Patreon. I think he's more of a problem for Aljamain Sterling, maybe more of a problem for Jose Aldo and Rob Font than Corey is. And that is something I've always held as well. And then with the Thunder, now that we know how good TJ is, how does he do against the top 10? Honestly, we don't know how good he is. We know he's good enough to make a competitive fight with Corey being heavily compromised and coming off a two-year layoff. That we do know. But he was nowhere near competing to the best of his abilities in that fight. So how does he do against the top 10? I guess Dominic Cruz, I think he beats him. Cruz is a little bit over the hill. Not completely, of course, he's still very capable. But TJ definitely think beats him, and the leg kick is going to be a big factor for that. He was one of the first guys to throw leg kicks at Dominic Cruz, or at least make it a focused. I think it was like starting in the third or fourth rounds. He definitely beats Pedro Munoz. He definitely beats Frankie Edgar. He's more powerful. He's faster. He again beats Cody Garbrandt for the third time. Definitely beats Marlon Moraes, especially these days. A prime Marlon Moraes? That would have been an iffy fight. That would have been a dangerous one for TJ. I do think he beats Aldo, but those first two to three rounds are going to be some of the most dangerous rounds in TJ's entire career. Once the fourth and fifth rounds hit because of TJ's pressure and his volume, if he's able to really put it on Aldo the way he kind of did against Hannah Barrao in a sense, not the exact same thing, but like a similar game plan sort of, I don't think Aldo's going to be able to swim with him for too long. But definitely a competitive fight. I could see Aldo winning that as well. I think TJ does beat Rob Font, but that jab is going to be there all night for Rob. Corey Sanhagen, I think he beats him in a rematch, although it will be a very close fight. I think he loses the Piotr Jan, and he definitely beats Aljamain Sterling. So he loses the Jan for sure, in my opinion. And Corey, Font, and Aldo are going to be very, very competitive fights that can go either way. And then we go to Scott Lindsay. Hey, Weasel, you've got the best content. Thank you so much, man. What caused Marlon Moraes' decline? It seemed like he was an absolute killer leading into and in his fight with Henry Cejudo up until the second round. However, since the first round of Cejudo, he has struggled in the octagon. Just wanted to know your thoughts and opinions. Thanks. The damage. I mean, he broke in that fight. Henry Cejudo went after him after adjusting from that first round. He looked very good against Jose Aldo as well, but once Aldo started to put the pressure on him, in those later rounds, Marlon Moraes was not able to compete the same way. And it might just be the fact that Henry Cejudo just found the game plan, found the blueprint to beat Marlon Moraes, and that's just heavily pressure behind a guard, counter his big looping punches and all that stuff, and just don't let him breathe. But then when I say that, Corey Sandhagen and Rafan didn't necessarily do that. They did it another way, using their reach, attacking from a distance, and all that stuff. And those two fights definitely showed that Malamarais' chin is not the same. It's not as good as it used to be. And that has to only be because of the Henry Cejudo fight. I mean, he didn't take that much damage from Aldo compared to what he took against Cejudo. Now, the head kick from Sandhagen was, of course, very powerful. But him getting hurt by jabs and stuff from Rafan... That's a little bit different. I mean, Font made it look very, very easy. And once they started putting the hands together and definitely swarming Marlon Moraes with those combos, Moraes was not able to react at all. So I think the combination of damage that he has taken in his career and the blueprint of pressuring him the entire fight, I think those are the main two reasons as to why he has declined. And then with a 2K underscore Jai, ceiling for the rest of the lightweight prospects who haven't talked about. Mark Casey, Alexander Hernandez, Thiago Moises, Nasra Hakparaz, and Yoel Alvarez. Ceiling for Phil Haas and Nasruddin Imavov. So what I will say is the only guys I can really see making it somewhere, definitely Thiago Moises, I can definitely see Phil Haas. Those are the two most promising in my opinion. Mark Casey definitely has the talent. Right, he's very, very athletic, he's very powerful, he's very fast, but he just doesn't put his techniques together. There are glaring holes in his defense, fundamentally speaking, and he tends to wilt under heavy pressure. 
Alexander Hernandez, I could possibly see him being like at the most on the lower end of the top 10. I still got to see more from Alvarez and Imovov. Imovov is a little bit inconsistent in his fights, so it's hard to really say, but he definitely has the talent and definitely has the skills to make it somewhere. Phil Haas and Tiago Moises are the two guys I'm most confident in. And then what's a Chris? Hey Weasel, huge fan here. How do you see this fight going? Rachmanov versus Hamzat. Appreciate it, brother. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, man. This one is very hard to say. So they're both very well-rounded, at least it seems like. Both are powerful. Rachmanov is more of a striker. He likes to stand a little bit more. Hamzat's more of a grappler. If Hamzat cannot take down Rachmanov, it does prove to be a bit interesting considering that Hamzat is getting better with his hands. But as of right now, I probably have to say Rachmanov is the better fighter. But I can see Hamzat surpassing Rachmanov in the future. I can see it happening. But as of right now, I think Rachmanov beats Hamza. It just all depends how that take the defense really works. And then with Hydro OG, what is the most effective martial art for street fights? In my opinion, it's between boxing and Muay Thai. I lean more Muay Thai due to the use of the clinch, elbows, and knees. BJJ is useless outside the cage because you can easily get slammed on concrete when you get a lock and it's ineffective against more than one person. Kickboxing isn't that good. You don't want to throw kicks or risk falling over. You may even be in jeans or tight clothing. Wrestling is similar to BJJ. You want to avoid being on the ground at all costs to prevent things like someone else coming in and kicking you in the head. It's important to be on your feet so you can run when necessary. So different martial arts for different situations. If it's a one-on-one -on -one and you know it's one-on-one, -on -one, there's nobody else around, BJJ is the most effective. It's the most controlling. You could finish off the opponent with many things you want to do. You're not an expert in takedowns, but BJJ shows you enough takedowns to take down any common citizen walking the earth. You can subdue them with submissions or just hold them in position to calm down the whole situation and just make them look foolish. Wait until authorities and all that stuff. This happened many times where a BJJ guy takes the guy to the ground, holds him in submission, holds him in the position up until the cops come. Maybe they call them on their phone and stuff. That sort of thing usually happens. But what I will say is on a one-on-one -on -one situation, almost all of these are very, very effective. I mean, most guys don't know how to defend themselves. Most guys don't know how to fight in general. But the most effective one-on-one, -on -one, I probably would have to say is BJJ. Most people just run at you, throwing their limbs, headhunting you, and takedowns are going to be there controlling on the ground submissions, all that sort of stuff. As for wrestling, you know, you can run the risk of hurting them a little bit more if you slam them on concrete. If you are on top, yes, you can control the position, but in order to inflict some kind of damage, there's going to be a lot more ground and pound shots and stuff like that. So definitely very, very effective. I will say probably the second most effective behind BJJ in terms of a one-on-one -on -one situation. Now with multiple attackers, Boxing, I think, is the most important. It teaches you the footwork, the mobility to move around and get away from one guy, attack his friend, get back to that one. You can kind of change your target with your hands a lot faster than you can with kicks, knees, and elbows. Punches in general are much faster than kicks, and they're longer than the elbows and the knees. Also, with the fact that most people throw their hands in street fights, you are a master of punching, so you're able to really defend one, catch them with one of your big punches, drop them, hurt them, and then go to the next guy. So because boxing is the best with mobility, you can change your angles on different targets, and the speed of your hands is generally going to be the most useful when you're switching between targets. With multiple attackers, BJJ and wrestling is not something you want to use. You can get kicked when you're on the ground. It's too one-on-one -on -one focused. So what I will say is if you can combine two martial arts to defend yourself the best in these kind of street fight scenarios, boxing and wrestling, that's the best. You really do control if the fight ever goes to the ground and how you want to control is all up to you. Most street fights do end up on the ground and with your wrestling, you're able to control when that happens and how it happens. And on the feet, you're a master You're a master puncher. Everybody throws hands, nobody throws kicks. If they throw kicks, you have the wrestling to grab it, take them to the ground. On concrete, wrestling is one of the most dangerous martial arts out there, where you can cause the most damage with a double leg or a high crotch. So you're pretty much mastering everything that your street fight commoner is trying to do against you. So very good question. And then we go to Daniel Sandoval. 
Hey Weasel, love the content. Want to ask, were you ever or are you a WWE or pro wrestling fan? If so, who are your favorites? Also, opinions on AEW. I haven't watched professional wrestling in a very long time. Um, ever since I was a young teenager, maybe like 13, 14 years old. I was a big fan during the Attitude Era. I do remember that, though know, the whole thing with The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H. And I remember uh, Steve Blackman. I remember Ken Shamrock when he came in, Kurt Angle. It was fun back then because it wasn't as censored. I watched it a bit when the whole thing with, um, who was it, the Evolution with like Batista and Triple H. I remember that. Uh, Randy Orton became a big thing. John Cena was like the biggest thing on earth. And that was pretty much it. So I haven't watched it in a long time. And I don't know what AEW is. I'm sorry. My favorite of all time was Stokely Steve Austin. I like The Undertaker and Kane as well. I think with Hasbula, the GOAT. Assalamu alaikum, Weasel. Logan Paul and Anderson Silva boxing is allegedly in the works. How do you see it playing out? So it turns out that this is not happening anymore. Anderson Silva is now going to fight Tito Ortiz in a boxing match. That might even be easier for Anderson Silva, to be honest. He's going to destroy Tito. He's far too good of a boxer. Faster, more power in his hands, all that sort of stuff. Even if Tito is probably on the stuff, Anderson is still going to give it to him. And as for Logan Paul... Anderson destroys Logan Paul as well. Anderson has aged better than most fighters I've ever seen. I mean, maybe Bernard Hopkins aged better than he did. Anderson, even still today, is one of the best strikers in the world. He beat Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., who is an active professional boxer, former champion, has been doing this since he was a kid. He beat him, and he's 11 years older. That is so crazy. Every time I think about it, every time I say it, it's just crazier to grasp. If Anderson is able to do that and showed what he did against Junior, Logan Paul has no hope of beating Anderson Silva. They're both like the same size. Anderson has a longer reach, I think, like an inch or two. He's more powerful. He's faster. Way better understanding of boxing, the movement, all that stuff. I can definitely see Logan Paul getting finished in that fight, 100%. I mean, everything he does is just too open. It's too defenseless. He drops his hands after everything he does. He wings his punches, especially when he gets a little bit confident in the fight or he smells the blood and stuff. He doesn't know how to compose himself. And that's extremely bad when he fights Silva, who's playing around in front of him, taunting him, going up against the ropes, telling him to come on, hit me. What do you think Logan Paul's going to do in that situation? He's going to throw his hands. And what happens to fighters, even professional fighters, who do that against Anderson Silva? He counters them. And he counters them hard. That straight of his is going to catch Logan Paul so hard it's just gonna be way too one-sided and now we go to the public questions we're gonna go with the most like comment by angel ar what type of fighter is more difficult to prepare for a fighter that is unorthodox that you don't know what they're going to do such as yuri prohaska or a fighter that is so good in one area that they can impose their will on every fighter example habib thanks a lot for your videos man keep it up thanks so much for the question and it's an interesting one so the more difficult fighter to prepare for is your Prohaska. If a guy's unorthodox, you can't prepare for them that well. That's just what it is. But even though it's so hard to prepare for that unorthodox fighter, it's easier to fight them. There's a difference between preparing for a fighter and actually fighting them in terms of difficulty. Habib is rather easy to prepare for. He's much more one-dimensional. He approaches the fight almost the same in every single one of them. It's just when you go up against him, You've never felt something like that in your entire life. I mean, everybody prepares for Habib the same way. They try to defend takedowns. They try to get the better of him in the striking, you know, getting past some of his quote-unquote ugly striking attempts. But the speed at which he throws that jab, the way he's able to move around the cage and shooting on you so fast and take control at a blink of an eye. Fighters are not able to grasp around all of that by the time they get in the cage. So it's more difficult to prepare for Prohaska. You just have to go and fight him. You can't even game plan for the guy. That's how difficult it is. But it's going to be easier to fight him because 
because you'll see the tendencies and the weaknesses when you do fight him. That unorthodox style is going to show a lot of weaknesses defensively rather than fighting Habib where he's a lot easier to prepare for, but he's a lot harder to fight. Same thing goes for guys like GSP, you know? Everybody knew the double leg was coming. Nobody was able to stop it. Everybody drilled against a double leg takedown their entire training camp. But once they got in there, they still couldn't stop it. It's just a different level of explosion and the timing is a bit different. And then we go to Michael Kier. Why do you think Hamzat is a top three threat to Usman when he hasn't beat a single UFC welterweight? When I'm talking about Hamza, I'm more looking at his potential in the future. He has the style to really give someone like Usman problems, right? He has the power in his hands. He's taller than him. He's fast with his hands as well. And he has a different style of wrestling that Usman has never fought in his entire career. As good of a wrestler as Usman is, the wrestling from Dagestan and Chechnya is completely different. It has shown historically, time after time, gets the better of the American style wrestlers it just does that doesn't mean that american style wrestlers cannot beat one of those guys from russia but it just shows that generally as the more we see that scenario play out the wrestlers from the caucuses are just completely different while also understanding the style that the americans have the big issue that a lot of wrestlers in america have when they're competing up against the wrestlers from the caucuses is that is that there's not really a program in america to really get the american style wrestlers prepared to fight that different kind of style right most of the wrestlers over there in chechnya and dagestan they eventually come to america to learn things, right? This is what happened with Habib Nurmagomedov. Now, Hamza Shemaev doesn't train in America necessarily, but he has trained here many times. So they do get the understanding. While guys like Kamaru Usman, at least to my knowledge, he might have, but a lot of wrestlers over here do not move over there to learn their stuff. And that is the issue. So there's a big possibility. This is my theory as to why I put Hamza as a top three threat to Usman. He potentially even has the wrestling to trump Kamar Usman. So if he can take down Usman as well as outstrike him using his power and stuff, Usman could be in big time danger. So the potential for Hamza is the big reason as to why I put him as a top three threat. And then we're going to Poco Mex. If you remove Nunez and Shevchenko, who do you think will be the current champions at Bantamweight and Flyweight? How long do you think they will hold the belt? The champ at Bantamweight would be Jermaine Durandamy for sure. And honestly, I could see her defending it as many times as she wants. Who's going to outstrike her? Nobody's going to outstrike her. I think she beats Holly Holm yet again, and I think she'll do it even easier this time. Fighters can take her to the ground like Juliana Pena. Juliana Pena might be the best wrestler, but she just got submitted by GDR. There's Misha Tate. But I don't think Tate does anything special. Irina Aldana gets outstruck, especially outkicked. Aspen Ladd runs into punches like she did last time. Yana Kuniskaya, nope. The only one that can give her problems, in my opinion, is probably Holly Holm. But I still think GDR beats her. So I can see GDR defending that belt for a long, long time. And as for flyweight, potentially... Tatiana Suarez would probably win that belt and just dominate most of the fighters there. And then your next question, if Connor makes it back to 145 and doesn't drain himself too severely, how does he do against the top 15? This is definitely the move I want to see from Conor McGregor, but let's look at the top 15 featherweights. I'm going to go through it really quickly. As of right now, I think he beats Ilya Tupuria, but in the future, I can see Tupuria beating him. He beats Shane Burgos, loses to Evloev, beats Zadik Yusuf, Beats Bryce Mitchell, loses the Giga Shikadze, but that would be an interesting fight, especially with the boxing. Beats Edson Barboza, beats Dan Ige, beats Josh Emmett, beats Arnold Allen, but that's a difficult fight because of how well-rounded Arnold Allen is. He beats Kelvin Cater for sure, beats Korean Zombie for sure, beats Yair Rodriguez, beats Brian Ortega. Ortega's gonna have a very hard time getting in without getting hit. Loses the Max Holloway and loses the Alexander Volkanovsky. The most confident I'm in 
is that Holloway probably beats Connor. The pace, the volume, the cardio, the overall striking technical prowess, I think it's just going to be a little bit too much for Conor McGregor. And the fact that Holloway is starting better in his fights. He's been a much more effective fighter in the first two rounds than he was in the past. And that's a huge thing for him going up against Connor. Right now, as it looks, Holloway is probably the best fighter in this division. And then we go to MMA UFC. Is 135 the most stacked division in the UFC? And how would you rank all the UFC divisions in terms of their competitiveness? No, I don't say Bantamweight's the best. I still think Lightweight is the best division. I mean, if you really look at it, Oliveira's the champ, right? Then we got Dustin Poirier, Justin Gage, Benil Dariush, Michael Chandler, Islam Makashev. I'll skip over Tony. We have RDA. We still got Dan Hooker. We still got Conor McGregor. Gregor Gillespie's kind of there. Brad Riddell, Rafael Fiziev, Armin Saryukian. And not only that, all the prospects coming up, like Agurum Kutiladze. I don't know if I said that right. Gamrat Matiush. Just so many great fighters in that lightweight division, man. I think it's still the best. Honestly, what I think it's more competitive between divisions is featherweight and bantamweight. A lot of people are looking over featherweight, man. Featherweight is looking really stacked right now. So let's look at featherweight. They got Alexander Volkanovsky, who in my opinion is the better champion out of those three weight classes, out of lightweight, bantamweight, and featherweight right now. Then you got Max Holloway. Then you got Brian Ortega. Yara Rodriguez, but he's still a little bit uncontested. We got Korean Zombie. Kelvin Cater's still pretty good. Arnold Allen's making his way up there. Josh Emmett's pretty good. Dan Ige's making his way up there still. Edson Barboza's making his way up there. Giga Shikadze, Bryce Mitchell, Sadiq Youssef, Mavsar Evloev. Skip over Shane Burgos. He's a fun fighter. But then we got Ilya Toporia. Talking about young fighters just rising that division right now. Now compare that to Bantamweight. You got Aljamain Sterling as the champ. Piotr Jan, TJ Dillashaw, Corey Sanhagen, Rob Fon, Jose Aldo. Those guys right there really stand over everybody else. Because right after that, it falls off a little bit. You got Marlon Moraes. You got Cody Garbrandt. You got Frankie Edgar, Pedro Munoz, Dominic Cruz, Marav Dohajvili, who's still trying to prove his name. And after that, it definitely falls off. I mean, you do have Marlon Vera. And you do have Sean O'Malley who's doing things outside of Top 15. But it's very close. I think those two divisions are the closest right now. The issue with comparing any of these divisions to lightweight is just how great that top six is. From Oliveira to Islam Makashev is just stacked. There's no division who have a stronger top six than that. But let's order all of them. So I will say lightweight is number one. Bantamweight is number two. Featherweight is number three. Welterweight is number four. Number five is where it gets difficult because I'm thinking between strawweight and middleweight. Middleweight, you have Adesanya and Whitaker who clearly stand over everybody else. I mean, those two top guys are insane. But as strawweight, you have Rose, Whaley, and Ioana, and possibly throwing Carla Esparza, who are all competitive right there. Outside of Whitaker and Adesanya for middleweight, you have Paulo Costa, Kenanier, Vittori, Brunson, who are all in their own same tier as well. Does that surpass Yan Nan, Mackenzie Duran, Marina Rodriguez? Rodriguez, Nina Nunes. Honestly, I think strawweight is more competitive and more fun, overall that is, than middleweight is. Adesanya and Whitaker are definitely the funnest. That's definitely the cream of the crop of the UFC. And then after Costa, Kenanier, Vittori, Brunson, and maybe Till, it falls off heavily after that. Maybe Hermanson might be in there, but Sean Strickland, Kelvin Gaston could still be in there. He competes very well with the top guys. But then you have Uriah Hall, Edmund Shabazian, Chris Weidman, Tavares, Holland. That really falls off. How's that compared to the strawweight division with, yeah, you got Claudia Gadea, you have Tisha Torres, Michelle Watterson. Yeah, so I will say middleweight is number five. You know what? I'm looking over flyweight a little bit too much. I mean, you do have Brandon Moreno, Davidson Figueredo, Askar Askarov. Those are definitely the top three guys there. Then you have Pantoja, you have Alex Perez. Benavidez is on his way down. I don't think he's really going to rise in the rankings. You do have Brandon Royvel, you got Kai Kara France, you got Cody Garbrandt coming down there. Rogerio Bontarin, Matt Schnell's pretty good as well. Matthews Nicolau is fun. You know what? You can actually make an argument that flyweight can be over middleweight. 
You can make an argument for that. But right now, I probably say flyweight is better than strawweight. Overall, that is. They're very similar to the top, you know, where Rose, Whaley, and Yoana. And maybe you put Esparza in there as well. Those are definitely the top of that division. But how does that compare to Moreno, Davidson, and Eskarov? It's similar, right? It's very similar. The thing is, though, what I will say why flyweight goes over strawweight is because the lesser competition, the guys who are lower on those rankings, are much, much more competitive and much better scaling to the weaker strawweights. So I will say flyweight is number six. Then I'll say strawweight is number seven. Then I'll say light heavyweight is number eight. I'll say heavyweight is number nine. Women's bantamweight is number 10. And then women's flyweight, I'd probably say is the weakest division in the UFC. Now, some people might disagree with the heavyweight, light heavyweight placement. Some people say that light heavyweight is weaker than heavyweight. What I will say is the top guys at heavyweight definitely trump over the top guys at light heavyweight. When you got Nganu, Sermel Gan, Stipe Miocic, definitely way over Blahovic, Glover, and Yuri Prohaska. Definitely far better than that. But everything else, light heavyweight beats heavyweight. I mean, look at the rest of the heavyweight division. You got Derek Lewis, Curtis Blades, Alexander Volkov, and Jarzina Rosenstrike. That's definitely the next tier. How's that compared to Rock Hitch, Santos, Reyes, Smith, and Ankalaev? And you might even put Uzdemir in there. Light heavyweight definitely wins that one. Then in heavyweight, it falls off so hard after that. You got Shamil, Tibura, Sakai, Dawkins is on his way up. You got Harris, Ivanov, Aspinall's on his way up, Spivak, and then Pavlovich. How's that compare to maybe Uzdemir, Krylov, Walker, Span, Paul Craig, Misha Sarkunov, Jim Crute, and Jamal Hill? Besides like the top three, light heavyweight destroys heavyweight after that completely destroys it so what we can say now is light heavyweight is not the weakest division in the men's category i would say heavyweight is but that's not to say that heavyweight's not fun the top of the division is really carrying it and honestly it's just to say right now the entire ufc landscape is more fun than it was in the past it's not that heavyweight got worse all the divisions are getting better so that was a fun question man and then we had a toxic what do you think Conor McGregor's career would look like if he changed gyms to something like AKA ATT or with Trevor Whitman and was active after the Habib loss? He can be different, but it would be up to him. The thing about Conor McGregor is he's pretty much his own head coach and his coaches even said it. They said they don't know MMA as much as he does, so he kind of just runs everything. They just help him with techniques that he doesn't know, but in terms of the game, uh, you know, game plans and all that stuff, Conor's like the guy who's taking control of his training camp. So what that means is no matter what gym he goes to, they're going to have a hard time teaching him or trying to take charge because Conor is that like natural leader in his training camps. He might be a little bit too arrogant when it comes into that process. It'd be up to him. He would have to change his mindset if he wants to go to another gym and get better because he's not going to be the star of the gym. If he goes to AKA ATT or with Trevor Whitman, he's not going to be the focus for everybody. You have champions all over the place. He's not going to get special treatment. And that might be a problem for Conor. It might actually make him look worse in a fight. But what I will say is, if he stayed active after the Habib loss, he definitely would have been much better than he is today. Activity is so important in the sport. The more you fight, the more you start to understand the game. The more you start to learn about everything. The better your timing gets. The better your precision gets. It's just natural. If you're not competing, the first thing that goes out the window is your timing. And you even saw that with TJ. TJ looked great in terms of you know his speed and his power and his technique and stuff. But what really fell off for him was his timing for many things. It's a reason why he got dropped as well. And you could probably see it a little bit when he fought Dustin Poirier in that second fight. There were moments where he could have landed the left hand. Or at least time it a lot better and allow him to throw a lot faster. Right, very similar to the way he was landing left hands on Eddie Alvarez on the counter slipping of shots and stuff like that. He had some of the movements and some of the slipping on Dustin's strikes. But he just didn't have the timing of his left hand to really capitalize on the moments. If he kept active after the Habib fight, that timing would have just built onto itself. And then we go to Ryan. Does Herb Dean give too much slack to experienced fighters like Conor, TJ, etc.? 
regarding cage grabs, short grabs, and other stuff like that. Do experienced fighters know how to take advantage of this? I would. Yeah, I think everybody would, you know. If you can get away with doing stuff like that that gives you an advantage in a fight, you're probably going to do it. I mean, what's a warning? Warning means nothing. It just means you got away with it. I don't know why Herb Dean gives some slack to certain fighters. I mean, with Conor McGregor, is just so apparent. All the cheating against Habib, all the cheating against Dustin Poirier, almost upkick Poirier pulling onto his glove. That would have been horrendous if that landed. And Herb Dean is just sitting there in plain sight. He sees it all and he just doesn't do anything about it. I don't know what it is, man. I'm not too much into conspiracies, you know? I'm not in the school of Eddie Bravo. But I hope nothing funny is going on about that. Because it happens in like all of Conor's recent fights. It may be because they're experienced. It may be because he knows them better. Or it might be that he knows that if he doesn't give what Conor wants, he's probably not going to be able to ref his other fights. I don't know how the pay structure goes for refs, but I would have to think at least if you're refing big time fights, you're probably going to get paid more for it. So if he allows Conor to cheat in a fight, Conor likes him because of that and stuff. He might just want or at least request Herb Dean to ref his fights. And then that order, maybe Herb Dean gets paid more for it. And then we go to Gavin Street. I'm so sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Thoughts on Robbie Lawler versus Nick Diaz. My personal belief is Lawler wins. But again, it's been so long since we've seen these two in competition. It's very hard to predict. Keep up the good work. Love the channel, man. Thank you so much. And I cannot wait to see this fight. Man, I love watching that first fight of theirs. And it's going to light a different kind of fire under both of them. Now, I understand Nick didn't want to fight Robbie back in the day. They were supposed to put that together years ago. It didn't happen. He wasn't interested. Robbie was all over it. Robbie will fight anybody. Robbie is true to who he portrays to be. He doesn't care. He's an absolute gladiator. But even with Robbie's calm demeanor, his I don't care persona, I think this still does a little bit more for him. I think he's still very excited to have this fight happen, right? As much as he doesn't like to show it, I think we're going to see a different kind of Robbie Law in that fight really prove himself because I don't care who you are if you lose to somebody and you have an opportunity to fight them again it just lights a different kind of fire under you even for someone like Robbie Lawler how could he not want to take advantage of this and right that wrong and one of the most infamous losses of his entire career now who is going to win it's impossible to predict just like you said man it's way too hard if you're going to predict this you're kind of just guessing we don't know how Nick Diaz looks he hasn't fought in, what, seven years? And then Robbie Lawler, on the other hand, clearly is over the hill. I mean, he's clearly out of his prime. But he hasn't fought in a while as well. So they're both two older guys. Nick Diaz has the style to beat Robbie Lawler. So if we look at the styles, Nick should beat Robbie. Especially with the way that we saw RDA put it on Robbie and just made him bob and weave for five rounds. Now imagine the kind of volume that Nick puts on him as well as the power that he generates behind it because he hits a lot harder than his brother. Nick has some real power in his hands even when he's throwing 50 to 75% punches. He still is able to get you out of there and go to your body and all that sort of stuff. Much better target placements than even RDA had against Robbie. And if Robbie bobs and weaves and stays on the defense for too long, I even think an older Nick Diaz will take advantage of winning the fight off of that just because of that style. But if he's so slow, his timing is so off, Robbie should definitely beat him just for being the more active fighter. So very hard to predict if I were to choose. Ah, it's so hard, man. Seven years is no joke. Just because he subscribed to my channel, I'll say Nick Diaz wins. Anything else is pretty much a guess. And then we're going to Max Wellhouse. How well do you think Yoel Romero can do in Bellator now with all this time off and him being even older? Thanks for the content. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for the question, man. So when is the last time Romero fought? March 7 of 2020 when he fought Adesanya. He's coming off of three losses. 
all of them very, very close. That's a year and a half off, and by the time he competes, it might be two years. It depends who he fights. So, Gegard Musasi is going to be an issue for him. Everybody else? I don't think so. Musasi could keep the jab on him and just generally just keep the reach on him. Counter some of the explosion and work his guard if he gets taken to the ground because Musasi doesn't have the best takedown defense. And honestly, we don't know how Yoel is going to look in Bellator. There's a possibility he looks even better given that there's no, you know, uh, hall monitors. But right now, I'll say Romero beats everybody, possibly. Has a very hard time against Gegard, but he can still win that fight through his wrestling. Then we go to Alex Iden. I know you did the nightmare matches for current champs, but I would also like to know what are the nightmare matches for fighters like Jan, Poirier, and Gan. Keep up the good work, man. Thank you so much. So the nightmare matchup for Piotr Jan, I would have to say is TJ Dillashaw. He's one of the most well-rounded. He can compete with Piotr Jan in many different areas. Piotr is just way too strong for specialists. You can't just attack him with one method. He's too strong in everything he does. He's too technical. He's too fast. He's too powerful. He's just learning and getting better every time we see him. So I'll say TJ is the nightmare matchup for Pietrian, but I don't favor him, so I'll say like a 4 out of 10, maybe 5 out of 10. Now, for Dustin Poirier, I'll say his nightmare matchup is Islam Makashev. I just don't see him stopping the wrestling. I do not see him stopping the grappling, and he's just way too safe from a distance. Islam is very defensively sound, much more defensively than offensively. He's very athletic as well. He's very big, and I think he's stronger than Poirier. Everybody else in this division, I can see Poirier just fighting through things. Charles Oliveira, he could definitely find ways to catch him and smother him on the feet. Benil Dariush, same thing. I actually think he handily beats Benil Dariush. He could do it against Michael Chandler as well. And I would favor Islam to probably beat Dustin. I will say he's like a 7.5 out of 10. Justin Gaethje, I would say, is the next guy. That one, I think, is pretty even. He could beat Dustin. Dustin could beat him. Michael Chandler would also be an issue. Charles Oliveira would be an issue. And then as for Surreal Gone, I actually don't think it's Francis Ngannou. I think it's Stipe, mostly because of the wrestling, and he's a lot more fundamentally sound with his hands, right? He doesn't wing his punches. He shoots them down the center, right down the pipe. He has a very good understanding of boxing as well, and he does mix it up with his wrestling. It's hard to fight Gon as a straight kickboxer. And then we go to Eugene Ponte Corvo. At this point, we've heard plenty about Islam Makashev and his immense skill set and potential to become lightweight champion. However, despite having similarly well-rounded skill set to Makashev, MMA fans appear to pay little attention to Armin Saryukian, who had a closely contested fight with Makashev. What do you think Saryukian's potential is in the context of possibly becoming world champion in the future. I could not agree with you more. When you really think about it, look at all the guys right now that Makashev is just blowing right through and making it look like they don't even belong in there with him. Armin Saryukian fought tooth and nail, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Islam the entire fight. It was so close. Amazing grappling for both guys, man. Great takedowns, great defense from both of them. It was one of the highest level grappling collisions that we have seen in the UFC. And people have overlooked it so quickly. I've said it before that Armin Saryukin is definitely going to be a top three fighter. I place him number three in the next four years. There is a possibility he could be the champion, but it's hard for me to think that he beats Islam. Islam is going to be the most difficult fight for him always. He can beat Gurum Katalidze. He could beat Gamrat. I think he definitely beats Atman Zaitar. I think there's a possibility in the future he could beat Charles Oliveira. I think him and Rafael Fiziev will have a very, very tough fight. It's just Islam Makashev is the guy that I can see just creating a bigger gap between them. And then we go to, oh man, Yudaijit Saha. I'm so sorry, man. Who are the most well-rounded martial artists in each division in the UFC? Like your work, Weasel. Thank you so much, man. So in the heavyweight division, I'll say Derek Lewis. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Heavyweight, I will probably say Surreal Gan. He's not the best wrestler. He's not the best jiu-jitsu artist, but he definitely has those skills where most heavyweights just do like one or two things and they don't do anything else. And Gan was getting up there because he does throw many different kind of punches. He throws kicks now. He wrestles now. But I will say Surreal Gan does much, much more. Light heavyweight, I'll say is Magomed Ankalaev. Middleweight. Now, there's not a 
lot of well-rounded fighters in this division, or at least a fighter who does everything. So if I generally look at their skills, and I pick the fighter who does everything, he boxes, he kicks, he throws elbows, he throws knees, he shoots in for takedowns, he has good jiu-jitsu. Honestly, Marvin Vittori does all of that. In terms of a guy who does everything in the book, or at least every basic thing in the book, it's Marvin Vittori. Nobody else does all that stuff, right? Adesanya doesn't shoot for takedowns, he doesn't have the greatest Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Robert Whitaker has wrestling, but he doesn't use his jiu-jitsu offensively. Polo Costa brawls. Jarek Hanier strikes for the most part, mostly boxing and leg kicks. Derek Brunson, hands sometimes left high kick, and wrestles. I mean, there is Jack Hermanson. No, I'll say Jack Hermanson is the most well-rounded in this division. He does more things than anybody else. But Whitaker is definitely very well-rounded. I know a lot of people are going to say, what about Whitaker? He's very, very well-rounded. But he just doesn't do everything in the book, you know? Welterweight, I'll say, is Gilbert Burns. Again, does everything. Boxes very well. Kicks very well. Good movement. Wrestles extremely well. One of the best Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artists in the UFC. He's definitely the most well-rounded guy there. The lightweight division, there's a lot of them. Oliveira is very well-rounded. Dustin Poirier is well-rounded, Benil Dariush is well-rounded, Chandler, Makashev, RDA, Diego Ferreira, Armin Saryukian. It's hard to pick, man. They're all so well-rounded. I'm leaning either RDA or Poirier. The issue with picking Poirier is he doesn't kick that much. He throws some calf kicks against Connor, but he doesn't really throw kicks against anybody else, so I'll say RDA. He's lacking a bit of the jiu-jitsu off his back, but overall, he does more things than Poirier does. The most well-rounded in the featherweight division, it's Ilya Tapuria, Arnold Allen, or Dan Ige. It could be any one of them. You know, I'm probably going to go with Arnold Allen. The bantamweight division, I would have to say is TJ Dillashaw. Flyweight division, I will say is maybe Askar Eskarov. Women's bantamweight division is definitely Amanda Nunes. Women's flyweight division is definitely Valentina Shevchenko. And then women's strawweight division is Rose Namajunas. And then we go to Gurman Klar. Breakdown. How do you think a fight between Conor McGregor and Tony Ferguson would have played out in late 2017, early 2018, when Conor was undisputed champion and Tony was interim champion and both of them were in their prime? Love your content. Keep up the great work, bro. Thank you so much, man. So I think Tony would have won. Tony has shown to be durable enough to take Gaethje's hardest shots for pretty much five rounds. I mean, very close to it. And we're talking about, at the time, the hardest striker in the entire division. Habib has even said so. And he has clearly said, by far, Gaethje is the most powerful guy he's ever fought. Now, Michael Chandler, I think, hits harder than Gaethje now. But the point is, Tony has taken shots by the hardest hitter at that time and still able to go in the championship rounds, throwing shots, not looking tired, and trying to stay focused at the task at hand. Connor has that kind of explosion, but only for like the first two rounds, especially against someone like Tony Ferguson who's going to push the pace on him. I do think Tony's going to get countered for the first two rounds. I do think he's going to get tagged pretty hard, but I think Tony's tough enough. He has showed it. He has a chin good enough enough to go through that fire for the first two rounds, come out on top in the championship rounds, and drown Conor McGregor in his output. The other thing is, if Tony goes into southpaw and starts throwing those long jabs at Conor and check right hooks as he pulls away, it's going to be the same thing that Conor had to experience against Nate Diaz. Now Conor can move away from those jabs and allow Tony Ferguson to overextend, dropping his hand and showing his chin for Conor's left hand. But the difference between what Justin Gaethje did and what Conor usually does is Gaethje moves his feet, not so much his head. Conor is the opposite. Conor moves his head much more than he moves his feet when punches come at him. It's a lot harder to pull on a longer guy's punches who extends as far as Tony does rather than just move your feet and allow him to overextend himself. This is the reason why the jabs from Nate Diaz were catching Conor McGregor momentarily in the mid to late rounds. Conor was just constantly looking to pull on them or slip his head on them. When he pulls away from that jab, he's going to get caught at the end of it most likely. There's also the leg kicks, the body kicks. It'd be a tough fight for Conor in my opinion. Prime versus prime. I think Tony beats Conor McGregor and finishes him in the fourth or fifth round. And then we go to Billy Smith. Who do you think won? GSP or Hendricks? And do you think they were both on the juice? 
Uh, Johnny Hendrix, for sure. Live and rewatching it like a thousand times, every single time I saw it, Hendrix won. It had a different kind of scoring system, but people have to realize the scoring system back then was not that much different than it is today. A lot of people say, you know, Octagon Control and all that sort of stuff. No, the scoring system was clearly written out. There was still like a hierarchy or a supremacy of each category. Effective striking was still at the top of the list, and then it was effective grappling, and then it was aggression, octagon control and then defense the only difference was if there's significant strikes landed or effective strikes landed then you don't go to the next thing that the new rules state today for an example in today's rules if one fighter has the edge and effective striking you don't even go to octagon control and aggression and all that other stuff right you stop it there and you just determine who wins that round by effective striking and that's it the only difference with the old rules were that you still kind of judge octagon control and stuff even if one fighter has the edge in effective striking but effective striking was the most important aspect of judging it was actually even more important than grappling and also you had to judge defense back then a lot of people don't know that in the rules it states that they judge on defense as well. Now, I know the UFC doesn't say that before their cards. Right back in the day, they used to say effective striking, grappling, aggression, and octagon control. They never said defense, but if you go back and look at the ABC rules of 2009, they also judged defense. The way judges scored fights back then was not so different than it is today. Johnny Hendricks had the far more effective strikes for most of that fight. He also took down GSP as many times as GSP took him down. Now, I have to go back and watch as to which rounds the takedowns actually landed and all that stuff, but I do remember every single time I watched it that Hendrix won the fight. Now I'm going to make a video, a who really won video on GSP versus Hendrix. That's going to be a fun one. Now regarding juicing, we can't say for sure if Hendrix or GSP were juicing. We can't say for sure. If you were to ask me my opinion, I think John, I think Johnny Hendrix got some of his supplements from Mexico a few times, if you know what I'm saying. Once USADA hit, Hendrix's power went out the window. That magic in his hands got debuffed. Fight after fight, his body started to get more inflated. He started to get fatter, harder for him to make the weight, and not so much muscle on him. He looked relatively the same against Matt Brown physically. Steven Thompson's still kind of the same, and then after the Thompson fight, his body started to change. He couldn't make the weight, he missed welterweight twice, he missed a middleweight once against Tim Bosch, and he would hit these guys and nothing would happen to them. As for GSP, I have no speculation that he did. The only speculation about GSP is the fact that he fought in that era, but that wouldn't be fair if you just said that's why GSP took stuff. I mean, he was the one that recommended VADA, the Voluntary Anti-Doping Agency. He was the one that wanted to do it, and Hendricks did not want to do it. At first, Hendricks agreed to it, but I think only, but I think Hendricks only agreed to it to look good in the public eye. But once he knew that GSP was for real about it, and he was actually good to have Vada come in, he was like, oh, wait, 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 hold on there. I thought Vada was an acronym, acronym for another supplement. I didn't know there were anti-supplements. And then the last question, we go to Hyphen. What did you think of TJ Dillashaw's comeback? Do you reckon he has a good chance of beating Jan to become Bantamweight champion for the third time? I thought TJ's comeback was amazing. It definitely beat my expectations. He has so much riding against him in that fight, and that's the big reason why I thought Corey was probably going to win. But it wasn't necessarily like his skills or his technique, you know, his timing. It wasn't that that impressed me about TJ's comeback. It was how tough he was. How tough was TJ Dillashaw to do that? To go through all of that, fighting on pretty much one leg for four rounds after the first. A cut so bad, it was leaking into his eyes so badly that the fight easily could have been called off. He was injured coming into it and the whole two-year layoff. Not many fighters in UFC history had to go through such odds, fighting one of the best fighters in the division, and come out victorious. After, in the past, let's be honest, has been ridiculed for maybe his chin, maybe his toughness. No, man, TJ is as tough as they come. He's high-tier toughness, and just makes me a lot more confident in his 
potential in some of these bigger fights, even if he is compromised. Now, does he have a good chance of beating Piotr Jan? I don't think he beats him. I'd probably say Piotr wins like 60-40, maybe 65-35. There's still a chance for TJ to win, but he definitely has to fight the perfect fight. But if he goes and becomes a third-time bantamweight champion, I mean, do you just consider him the greatest bantamweight of all time? There is the whole thing about USADA, and you know, he did fail. For me, I can never say he's the greatest of all time, but if I'm going to look away from all that, and he goes and beats Piotr Jan, how can you not say TJ is the greatest bantamweight of all time? In my eyes, he would surpass Dominic Cruz. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. So amazing episode, amazing questions. The next one is going to come out on Monday, and I'll see you guys then.